Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is the movie we watched this week. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, give me your review of Scott Pilgrim versus the world i was i'm so excited that we got to watch this film i think this is edgar wright's jackie brown and i think it's got all of the necessary ingredients for edgar wright to knock it out of the park it's got comedy visuals music and action and he just whips it up with his little dash (laughs) of flavor on top of what is i think great source material and this is just a fantastic movie. I had such a fun time watching this movie. Absolutely. Yeah, it was interesting. I actually had more fun. I've, I think I've seen this movie four times. I had more fun watching it this time than I ever have. So I don't know what that means. But the thing that kind of stuck out to me in this watch is that this is just one of those movies that kind of explores that kind of post-teenage year awkwardness that i feel like a lot of people experience nowadays like in 1940 at 16 you joined the navy you went you fought in the pacific theater (laughs) then you came home you were married by 19 you had a house by 20 and you were you had a a office job uh and you were uh had your nice suburban family existence by the time you were 21 years old no longer folks (laughs) nope we've got Arrested development to deal with. Yeah, exactly. sustained A sustained adolescence. Absolutely, where, man. And we get, you know, I think the generations always like to harass the generation after them. And I think mm-hmm. we get a lot of flack for, like, you need to grow up. But yeah. it's not like we were, I mean, I think this movie, I think, <laughs> has some similarities, especially to our deep conversation about Shaun of the Dead. Like, yeah. finding your way. Mm-hmm. After you hit, you know, after you graduate high school with no, when everything else is taken care of, it's yeah that drive, because you had to leave and fight in the Pacific Theater because it was that or work <laughs> on a farm until you were dead. True that, yeah. So it was like your one chance at escape. I don't I know. Under, yeah. I, I understand. I see where this movie's coming from, and I think it hits a really interesting, and I think we need to distinguish because it is, you know, this... So much of it, I think, is fairly faithful to the to the comics. Yeah. So we need to make sure we're distinguishing where I think Edgar Wright is inspired by this. I think this story lines up with his uh, his previous stories, and when we see World at World's End, a similar mm-hmm. a similar tale. But you know, this is really Brian Lee O'Malley's story, and I think it was just it just synced so well with edgar wright's isms yeah well i mean edgar wright is kind of the guy to bring this thing to life the way that he does visual comedy the way he does the camera movements and also the way he introduces elements sneakily you know we saw that happen in Shaun of the dead we saw that happen in hot fuzz but he can kind of sneak these elements in and then it allows the style to gradually you know settle in with the audience as opposed to being like super jarring seeing words you know, flying across the screen or seeing, you know, the P-bar as he's emptying his bladder. Like, he kind of eases you into it from the very beginning, from the very, really the first scene of the movie. 
Um, so yeah, I, I it, is it Brian? What is it? What's Brian the name of the guy? Lee O'Malley. Brian Lee O'Malley. So he wrote the graphic novel Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which this is based on. But I kind of want to go back to your point there: is that this movie is kind of, in some ways, the spiritual prequel to Shaun of the Dead, because by the time we hit Shaun of the Dead, uh, you know, Shaun is thirty years old. So he's kind of already been through this post-adolescence period, but he also <laughs> has, has has sort of not escaped it. <laughs> he never uh, he never had the he never received the power of self-respect or love. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> well, no, he did, but I don't know if it changed him. I mean, I feel like he was he was uh, mildly self-sustaining, but you know, he did have Ed kind of holding him back. <laughs> but but I, you're right. I think it. It plays on those same themes of, you know, being tied to these this consumerist childhood that we are all reared in, uh, especially like Generation X, like Generation X's children. So I guess you would call those millennials. Although I think that Edgar Wright falls into the Generation X category. Um, but you know, we we kind of grow up in this consumerist childhood, and then we get out of that and we have such a strong nostalgia for all those elements that we don't want to get rid of them. Um, and that's why I have a little Groot bobblehead sitting on my desk right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, there, there was a time when you, you just retired to fishing and drinking Miller high life out of your beer fridge in your garage. But I, I guess at, at our point, we're just going to retire to streaming on Twitch and, uh, and playing board games, board game nights, you know, which is awesome. In I my opinion, imagine I that it. will probably be how I spend my retirement. If I live anywhere near you and Jesse and Jordy, mm-hmm. we'll mainly be playing D and D and board games. <laughs> yeah, dude. There's going to be a whole generation of old people who are playing video games in nursing homes nonstop. Like, what you else know? are you going to do with your time? What? Else? Not to mention with the longevity <laughs> longevity of life. We're going to be living to like 190 years old, and we're going to be playing Halo's, you know, 14. Probably Halo like forty three. It'll be like now, like the now CDs. <laughs> Halo forty five. Anyway. All your favorite Halo remixes. <laughs> Halo Christmas edition. Uh, yeah. So I let's let's get into the movie here. You know, you did mention that this was kind of the Jackie Brown of Edgar Wright. I'd love for you to expound on that just a little bit. It's this is the. Of the four that we'll watch with Edgar Wright that he's directed so far in terms mm-hmm. of feature-length motion films, um, this one he didn't write him. He didn't write himself. I I don't know what his involvement in the screenplay was. I don't think he got a writing credit for it. Um, at least according uh, to IMDb, Michael Bacall and Edgar Wright. Oh, writers! Geez, I'm staring at his name and ignoring it. Um. Michael Bacall wrote. He was uh, he got writing credit on *Inglorious Bastards*, um, and he also wrote *21 Jump Street*, *21 22 Jump Street*, and oh, *Project X*. Did you ever see *Project X*? No. What is that about? It's like a found footage. Is it found footage? I'm not sure. It's just about this giant high school party that kind of goes out of control. Um, heavily uses a remix of uh, Kid Cudi's uh, what is that song? Something Nightmare. Which is a good song. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, and well, it's a, a, it's adapt. You know, it's adapted from the graphic novels. And I went and I looked at. Um, I googled what the differences were between the the movie and the comics because I haven't read the comics. I think I flipped through part of one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
a long time ago, back after even and even that was after the movie had come out. But it's not his content, so it's you know it doesn't have Simon yeah. Pegg in it, right. and it's not it's an filmed in London. Mm-hmm. And so, but what I think is really great about it, and I think this is Tarantino had this advantage. Tarantino was taking a book about crime, yep, and which is you know he just has a a knack for writing criminals. Edgar Wright has a knack for adapting the mundane and the fantastical. <laughs> he puts He's them got, together yeah. so well. And this material, I mean, the source material, this is the world as Scott Pilgrim sees it through his eyes. And Scott Pilgrim is yes. a child in a man's body. <laughs> so, of course, he sees the world in, in terms of video games. He hears it in terms of video games. He wears throwback shirts that Hot Topic has probably this movie probably sustained hot topic for another five years <laughs> dude it, they this is all about goodwill man this movie's about goodwill <laughs> they shop at goodwill like three times in this movie i know and they do the 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 old-fashioned edgar wright we got to repeat this joke several times and just change it like the second <laughs> time they go through the the repeat of it's was it the record store and then the thrift store and then food and then the arcade and i think yeah. they only do it twice which was they do, i was they surprised they didn't do it a third time which is usually his, his no i think he's generally repeats. a two-timer honestly i think that most of his jokes only repeat once it's it's some, some of them report repeat three times but most of the time it's a it's more of a callback than a than the set i think tarantino kind of did the set and I think Edgar's more of the uh, the pair, if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, I <laughs> um, no but I, I get what you're saying here with the Jackie Brown analogy, because it is. It's like he made his first two original movies and then adapted a screenplay for his third one. And it was a bit of a uh, – Tarantino is still like an L.A. crime story. But this, you know, it's still a story about the pasty white guy. So I think Edgar Wright has the kind of the corner, corner of the market on the pasty white guy. <laughs> the awkward pasty white guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do such a good. This is the only movie where Liz is actually capable of putting up with Michael Sarah. She generally mm. dislikes his his style of acting, his <laughs> lethargy, uh-huh. and um, he's but he's the underdog in this. They put him up against all of these butthead exes, and for the most part, you understand. They do a good job of letting you understand. Like he moved across the street. From his childhood home. He lives in a bunker. Like the door to his house is buried in the earth. And (laughs) when you stand him next to Chris Evans, who's acting like a douche, you were going to root for Michael Sarah. Yeah, that's a crazy thing, though. Let's talk about uh, Michael Sarah, Scott Pilgrim here. Um, This guy is is weird. (laughs) He's a major weirdo. Like, I never, the, this is like my only kind of, the thing that kind of grated on me throughout this movie is like, why is Ramona with this dude? Because he is, he's a man baby. He's like a, <laughs> he's a weirdo. He like very overtly at the end of the movie gains self-respect, which he obviously hasn't had for the entire course of the film. But I think that it does go back to what you were talking about in terms of this movie is seen through Scott Pilgrim's eyes. So... Part of me thinks that the Scott that we see on the screen is not the Scott that's actually being represented in the world, you know? 
Like this is all in his mind and this is the, his own insecurity and this is how he feels like he's dealing with people in his own head when everybody's obviously putting up with him because he still has friends. I feel like if somebody acted like this nonstop, it'd be very hard to be their friend. With the the sheepishness and the flakiness and the uh, the just total lack of any form of self uh, respect or confidence or I don't know, not sure. I'm not sure I would be Scott's friend. <laughs> I think that's one thing that they don't do in the show because you know the, his bandmates are his friends, even Kim, who you know shows him pretty much a <laughs> thorough disdain for the extent which. Favorite character absolutely is Kim. <laughs> um, between her shouting and her mean mugging, yeah. But well, Kim, Kim is the Kim is the adult. Kim is the person who is sitting back, being like, "What the fuck?" Like rolling her eyes. But why is she there then? Well, That's no, the thing, I, is... I just think in the story she represents the you know one of my favorite posts on the forums about this movie. Uh, it came from Freddie in, te- in Denton, Texas. He says, I'll never forget when me and my friend saw the theatrical trailer for this right after my buddy says, I'm pretty sure that's the movie that tells us we're getting old. Like, <laughs> Kim represents the voice of that guy <laughs> in this movie. Just like the, oh, come on. That, like, that's that's the Kim in this movie. She's, she's the glue that holds that skeptic, uh, you know, around because she's, she's speaking for him, I think. I think... It's the old thing is kind of fun because it's not just we're old, but we're such an odd segment because we grew Uh up when nerds were still not like the king of the heap. And I think with the Internet era and YouTube, it's become more accepted to be the geek. uh, It was pretty. We, I mean, maybe it was just the lethargy of our high school in general, but I didn't feel like a big divide between the yeah, geeks and we the jocks. I feel like everybody just kind of like, yeah, there was no bullying or anything. It was just like, yeah, that's the geeky click, and that's the you know jockey click, and and you know it was, but it, there was no like ill will between the groups. It was just like, yeah, you just kind of find your group, and but I mean, we also went to a very. I would say dispassionate high school. <laughs> the pep rallies were were anything but. I think all oh, the uh, worst. Yeah, <laughs> just too cloudy, too no sun, all that rain. Yeah, you couldn't just get us sitting in, the, in a green valley. I'm pretty sure that sh- that school is built on a marsh. Um. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> but the, uh, the childhood nostalgia, the video game. Like the sound effects for the video games. I was asking Liz about this. She was watching it with me. She doesn't, she's never played Zelda. She doesn't uh-huh. know, like, when Scott Pilgrim goes to the bathroom and they're playing the, it's the fairy fountain uh-huh. music, which in Zelda was like awesome. I can go here, you can get a fairy. And when you use one, like, you get all your health back. And so it was kind of a relief. <laughs> and I was asking, does this music, do you, get it like do you understand it's from a video game is it just weird does it fit <laughs> and she's like i i get it fits i right. understand it's from a video game it's ob- it's obvious just based on the is it the tone of the music you know it sounds 8-bit and that yeah, was it, okay for her sorry i was a, a dramatic long pause as i thought about it <laughs> Well, you know, the point was made, sir. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that, I, I actually, I didn't, uh, I have a, I have a 
bit of a confession to make. I have never played Zelda either. None and of them? Nope. Never was a Zelda guy. You know, it was... Unfortunately, I got into the video game game a little late. Like, basically, my first console was an SNES, and my first video game was Donkey Kong Country. That was an SNES. You could have played Link's Awakening. I think it was Link's I'm... Awakening on the SNES. Well, let's let me get this straight. So, my parents bought me the SNES because it had been discounted thoroughly because that was the Christmas that the N sixty four came out. <laughs> so that that was that. And then I bought, I had to buy my own first Xbox. So I, I was not a video game kid. I would go over to other people's places and play video games. But Zelda really isn't the game that you go over and play with other people. Yeah. You're going to play Turtles in Time, you know, maybe some <laughs> Duck Hunt, that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, so I didn't get it either. But that, it still, it still just kind of rang as the, kind of the theme of the movie. Um, I thought that it was, it wasn't jarring or anything. But there are some awesome, like, little pop culture, you know, segments that fly into this movie. Like when uh, when uh, Chris Evans' character comes out of his trailer and they play the Universal theme. Oh, which yeah. Which I thought was great. Because everybody in their head, when they hear the Universal theme, goes, blump, blump. When it goes, blump, blump. Blump, blump. Yeah. Uh, so that was great. And then I loved the Seinfeld. That was like my favorite. <laughs> when when they go when Scott Pilgrim's on top of, on top of the world because he got to second base and it, he, they show the apartment it goes bow, 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 bow. and he kicks <laughs> and in the door like in, Kramer kicks in the door like Kramer and then the the laugh tracks and the audience noises it was that that scene just cracks me up like I love how they insert they unabashedly insert uh, pop culture references into this and sometimes you get them. Like with Seinfeld, sometimes you may not. With the Zelda, like that's that's a that's a deep track, man. That's a deep cut. Nicely done, sir. And even Seinfeld works because the laugh track is such a specific TV trope that yeah. when you go into a movie and you hear it, it sounds weird. So it's calling attention to itself, <laughs> but you know where it's coming from because everybody's seen a sitcom. Yeah, everybody's heard video game music, whether or not you play it, so you understand where they're. Or the eight when he gets a life, and he grabs yeah. the one up. You know, <laughs> you understand by the pixelated floating around what's going on. I think to a degree. Yeah, the one up. You know, and, and also this movie is not for everybody. I really, I'm not sure. Did your parents watch this movie? They probably did. Yeah, I probably went to it with them. It's 2010. Yeah. It would have been, I'd go home on the weekend and get a free movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm, uh, what year? yeah, 2010. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, like, what does the older generation think of this movie? Like, is this just too kinetic and bombastic and self-referential for a generation that doesn't have some kind of experiential connection to this time period? understand because like this is this i mean i was 25 when this movie came out so this was like one of those instances that yeah maybe i'm on the tail end of it and more of the age of of scott's gay uh boy or gay <laughs> boyfriend gay gay roommate uh like because he's 25 of this movie and i like his character a lot kieran colkin's character because he's also a voice of reason he's he's already found the self-respect so he's like got the sword he's got the artifact uh, and so he could be a little bit more of a voice of reason to Scott, who who hasn't quite you know finished that hero's journey yet. Well, and he's he is Scott Pilgrim's mentor. Scott Pilgrim yeah. has no there are no adult figures in this story, Mm-mm. so presumably Scott is on his own in finding his way <laughs> in the world. And Kieran Culkin, this 
sulky 25 year old mm-hmm. is doing his best like when he sits down with him and tells him you have to break up with knives yeah i cannot let you and then the double standard i there was so many good jokes where he's like double standard as the boyfriend walks by and goes, i didn't yeah. write the gay rule book <laughs> focus on you well and also that's that's a it seems to be a uh a group of consenting adults like knives is being manipulated ex- like to the extreme and she's very man- emotionally vulnerable because of her immaturity like he understands that there's a difference between this guy and his you know cadre of of uh of lovers and <laughs> and w- the way that scott is manipulating knives for his own personal gain so there is there's he's the obi-wan man he's the obi-wan kenobi of this he <laughs> <laughs> Except he doesn't end up dying. He's not that. He's not that much of the hero's journey. But, um, but yeah, he he's definitely the voice of reason. So between him and Kim, we're getting kind of the uh, the cranky old person and the wise old person, and they're they're you know I think twenty three and twenty five going into it. So yeah, I let's um, first of all let's talk about this cast, man, because this cast was like a who's who before, right before they were all who's who's. Yeah, it's Michael, like Sarah was coming off of Arrested Development, I think. Yeah, well, Michael Sarah, I think he had a yeah, I think this was one of his like first, you know, bigger bigger roles or lead roles. Uh, I think he had been in Juno by this time, but that was more of a supporting role. That and Super Super um, Bad was before well, Super this. Bad, that yeah, Super Bad big. was two thousand seven. Yeah, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Yeah, so he was doing he was Year One. I mean, who could forget Year One? <laughs> um, <laughs> He really but, yeah, lucked so, out that that did not end his career. <laughs> Even Jack well, Black still struggles to get back in it. <laughs> but I mean, so you know, he's he's kind of that the 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 front bill, and that that's understandable with his place at that time. But then you have Anna Kendrick before she blew up. You have Audrey Plaza before she blew up. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winestead had been in a few movies. She had been in Death Proof, which is something we we had before. So she was a little bit bigger. Um, you have uh, three superheroes in this movie. Three. Wait, uh, it, I, Chris Evans. Technically four. This was the year before he went Captain America. Yeah, so this is pre-Captain America, post-Human Torch Chris Evans. <laughs> really? So, I like that you're really two, up some of their the big, the strongest hits. Yeah, two there. And then you have Brandon Routh, who played Superman in Re- Superman Returns. That's why he looked familiar. Yeah, and... One of the vegan police, uncredited, mind you. The Punisher. That's Thomas Jane. The where Punisher. Where I recognize it from. There you go. Yeah. I got it. He's a so, good Punisher. He was a good Punisher. Uh, if anybody hasn't seen it, um, there's. I think it's called Dirty Laundry. It's a short that was made. It's a Punisher short that was made, like an unlicensed, unofficial Punisher short. I encourage you to go online and watch it. It is free on YouTube. Uh, and it's him playing the Punisher in like a post Punisher world, and you know now there's a new Punisher coming out with Daredevil and blah blah blah. But but you know he was a good Punisher. I liked him as Punisher. Um, but yeah, the superhero cadre is strong, and I love seeing Chris Evans play an asshole because the only thing I associate him now is the goody two shoes of Captain America. I love seeing him play like a massive jerk. I the chin strap great. really goes far oh, for the chin strap. <laughs> oh. I have this. Uh, so I have this question for you. I was thinking as I was watching everybody. I think it was Kieran Culkin that tipped me off. 
on this idea that where Tarantino needs intimidating people to nail his material, Edgar yeah. Wright needs the driest people possible. <laughs> and Simon Pegg is a little bit of an out outlier because he's not particularly dry. He can play that, but he's got a lot more energy. But guys like yeah. Bill Nye doing yeah. Edgar Wright material is always the funniest. And so many people in Scott Pilgrim are just so flat faced delivering just some absurd material that well, it Aubrey just Plaza. kills. Oh, Aubrey Plaza. I have yeah. a secret crush on her. <laughs> That's I have a secret a, anymore. I have an open crush on Anna Kendrick. <laughs> Aubrey Plaza is my secret crush. Aubrey Plaza is so great in this movie. I love how she just pops. Her character just pops up everywhere. She's omnipotent. <laughs> she's and the, like, the censorship of everything she's saying. Yeah, she's omnipotent and really angry at all, t- <laughs> at <laughs> at Scott, all times. Just directed yeah. at Scott. Yeah, because she sees what bullshitter he is. He's a massive bullshitter. Um. Let's you want. Let's go through the characters here because uh, I think we talked about Scott a little bit. Do you have anything else on Scott? Oh, I think he speaks for himself. Most of all of the characters we spent, we're seeing the yeah. world through his eyes, so I think he's yeah. the most easily understandable. But I think that it would be really interesting if they did a sequel to this movie in which it's Scott Pilgrim versus the world, but it's it's actually like what actually happened. <laughs> And it's not like this crazy, like schizophrenic uh, he jumps, view of the world. He jumps yeah. a movie actor who's actually really nice. I think I read somewhere that they don't like that fight doesn't end with him beating like uh, what's his name, Luke Lee, mm-hmm. Lee Lucas, um, Lucas Lee. He is actually kind of nice to him and doesn't want to fight. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's the whole thing. Like, I, I just imagine that like. This is just Scott, like, trying the process that Ramona has been with other people and, like, trying to, you know, uh, trying to come to grips with that because he's in love with this girl. But she's, you know, had other boyfriends and getting over whatever jealousy or stupid immature bullshit that goes along with that. And this is, like, his way of doing it is is in a video game competition (laughs) while he's completely covered up to his own bullshit with, with knives. So... Yeah, I, I would love to. I mean, it'd be really melancholic. I think like it'd be great to get like Alexander Payne to do it, who's the guy who directed uh, Sideways in <laughs> uh, Nebraska, <laughs> like something really somber and like you know contemplative in, in the, like, the cold Toronto winter. And this, and, like maybe Ramona Flowers doesn't even exist. Maybe he, she's just a complete construct of his mind because she does appear in his mind before she appears in reality of this film. So maybe it's just his slow descent into madness. <laughs> that took a real turn at the end. I love it. You went Lovecraft Pil- at the end. Yeah, it's, just, it's Scott Pilgrim versus the world, but it's uh, it's much more of a tragic tale Scott of a man Pilgrim descending into himself. Yeah, d- descending into the madness of loneliness because he'll never be loved. <laughs> 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 anyway, um, yeah, uh, we talked about Kim. Mark uh, Mark Webber playing Steven Still, so he, that's the that's the the talent. I, I love how he just freaks out at all times and is completely insecure as well. This is a guy who also needs to earn the sword of self respect in he, many ways. He does have one of my favorite cuts of the movie where it's him talking about they're standing outside of the when they have to do play the Katanagi twins, mm-hmm. and he says. Uh, 
I'm getting tingles. And then it cuts and they're outside the night of the show. You know, nothing, nothing with the in- interim. And it's them looking at the poster and goes, and the same position and everything with the, just darker in the background. And he goes, we're doomed. Uh, yeah. And then you see the poster <laughs> with just giant font. It's just all over the place. <laughs> amp to amp, which I don't know. That, is that a real thing? I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, it seems like, like a, a really bad idea. Yeah, it seems like a terrible way to watch a show. <laughs> well, I was thinking maybe if they alternate songs, then that would be kind of cool. Like, one band plays a song, then the other band plays a song back and forth. That'd be kind of fun. But yeah, the idea of playing at the same time, I I think that's what they were implying. And I'm not 100% for that. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I thought he was great. You know, I was in a band when I was in college, and it was very much like the idea of like, oh man, like how are we gonna get signed, bro? Like, what are you gonna do? Like, and that's how I actually spoke back then. So, uh, <laughs> it was San Diego, so it was yeah, bro. It was understandable. Yeah. yeah, what? Yeah, bro. What are you gonna do, bro? I don't even know, man. So that's that's what <laughs> I just love the anxiety of trying to get signed by a record label. Um, also like the, this Toronto music scene is odd to me because you have like the big, you know, the huge band that's, that's led by, uh, by Alison Brie. Um, and like they, they're huge, but then like, they're just like also just, you know, going around with Scott Pilgrim's band, which uh, sex bob which I was like, is this band good? I have no idea. I have no reference whether or not. I mean, they're kind of like the hives uh, or kind of like the vines, but I felt like by 2010, that kind of music had kind of kind of passed. I wasn't sure about that. Um, the, but the yeah, this music scene is interesting. For this movie. Oh, yeah. It's so fantastic. You When we started this, this hangout, mm-hmm. you were humming the main <laughs> tune from the movie. By the way, I, I said Alice and Brie. I meant Brie Larson. Uh, that was uh, before and after. I, I'm sorry. I guess I have a secret crush on Alice and Brie. Not so secret anymore. <laughs> this is really just our way to confess our our celebrity crushes. <laughs> oh my God, we we have crushes on all these beautiful, talented actresses. A direct, oh my a dr- direct trajectory to our <laughs> most famous crush. Let's stop here. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> soundtrack. The soundtrack is fantastic. I think I owned it at one point. I don't know where. It, it is in my delig- my digital collection of music, but mm-hmm. the Sex Bombs. I love Kim's count off. Yeah, uh, I love. Yeah, different every. You know, she's always shouting something out every time, and yeah. they just the the music and the action typically go hand in hand mm-hmm. for a lot of these fights, and it just it's the same reason that I like the fights in Pacific Rim. Because uh-huh. they get like a guitar riff going over the top of it, and something about that combination just gets the adrenaline going. And I think it's yeah. particularly referential to the. It's great that they made sure that the music was strong because I think, and I may have mis misunderstood, but when I was reading about the comics, I think the comics came with a track list hmm. at the end of like music you should go listen to while reading it. That's cool. And it was a good way to like, especially for Canadian bands you might never have heard of. Um, yeah. Because the the writer Brian uh, O'Malley was, is a big into the music scene. So he's writing from hmm. something of profound interest for him. 
Yeah, there's some cool stuff too with the, with the soundtrack because they actually had real bands represent the bands that were in the movie. So uh, the Sex Bob-omb songs were performed by Beck. Uh, Crash and the Boys songs were performed by Broken Social Scene. Um, and the Clash of Demon Hand were performed by Metric. Which I was like, is Brie Larson actually singing? And no, she's not. They're performed by Metric. <laughs> I thought it sounded um, like Metric, and I was yeah. I was like, she really nailed that sound. Well, it also sounded a little bit like Paramore. I wasn't. I was like, is that Haley? What's her face from Paramore? <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, the soundtrack is badass, and it's on Spotify, so you can listen to it there. There are a few songs that are broke that are not here. Like I'm so sad. So very, very sad. The 13 second song by crash and the boys, not available. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, a lot of the songs are. So if you want to listen to the soundtrack available on Spotify, um, who else let's go through. Uh, uh, we, you know, the thing we did with Jackie Brown is we went through all the characters. So that's, I think that it's, all, all of these characters are so interesting. This is such a character-driven movie. I think it's really fun to go through them. Knives Chow, dude. Who's Let's actually our Knives. age. I know. <laughs> I Googled that. I was Because I was just curious. You know, They were so specific uh-huh. about everybody's age. I was just dying to know. And she's three years older than Michael Sarah. <laughs> yeah, dude. She is like a tragic figure in this movie. And I, I also read that in the comic book, that at the end, Scott Pilgrim ends up with knives and doesn't end up with Ramona, but they changed it for the movie. So it feels better that way. Does it? I, I guess so. it does. Because the creepy factor, I can never get over the creepy factor. Like, it's creepy enough dating a girl in high school when you're 22. It's really creepy when she's 17. Yeah. Like, the whole thing, and they, I know that they go over it and they say they have, they've only held hands once and. It's like eh, this is still pretty gross. <laughs> but I like the, I, the and that's this is the beginning of the movie. So this is like the first introduction that we see to Scott as a character is saying, "Yeah, Scott's dating a high schooler and he's twenty two years old." So it immediately gets creepy, like right off the bat. <laughs> like, did you get creeped out at all about this? Because I, I felt like I don't, I, it was kind of nagging on me a little bit. Yeah, Liz was upset. Uh-huh. A lot, and no, knowing where the movie goes helps you kind of ignore it a little yeah. bit. But the reality is, it just reinforces where Scott's at in life. He doesn't have yes. it's, and that's the problem I always get. Even as we've gotten older, like you know, when you have friends with larger age gaps between them, mm-hmm. yep, there's just you're at a different place in life. Like yeah, the stark contrast, and I always get nervous about where your priorities are, and it's. <laughs> it's exponential when you're 17 to 22. And yeah, that's a pretty big gap. out over time, but oh no, totally. We have, Lydia and I have really good friends who are in their 40s, and like you know, it's no no big thing, man. But I do feel like the younger you are, the bigger the age gap is. So that's why the 17 to 22 age gap is like really kind of atrocious. I mean, a 27 to 32 age gap not that much not that different but a 17 to 22 there's a lot of growing up that needs to happen in that time frame and i understand it too i want to say in this movie i understand why they have scott dating a high schooler and they also make a point to under to basically say they don't have any sort of physical relationship because this is scott as this is just painting scott's immaturity like he doesn't want a mature relationship he wants to have a buddy to go hang out with who can't even go out after dark <laughs> like 
You want somebody to go to the, you know, to go get food with and go play Dance Dance Revolution with, and that's about it. That's that's his emotional um, capacity at this point. And in it's interesting because in those scenes, those early scenes with him and Knives, he's super confident. Like he is, he is Cary Grant in those scenes. But as soon as he meets a real woman in Ramona Flowers, he becomes a crumbled little gingerbread man. <laughs> like he can't function because he doesn't know how to function outside of out of a complete, completely immature uh, relationship. So I understand why it's there. It illustrates the point very well. Um, and I think that it effectively got me over the creepy factor, but it's kind of a weird thing to introduce Scott as kind of a creep right off the bat. It's that's why I don't. What I really want is they make good friends, they have shared interests, and in yeah. that effect, the age difference is not near is not nearly as much of an issue. It's the relationship. I think that's supposed to set everybody off, and that's why I prefer the end of the movie with him ending up with Ramona because yeah. that leaves knives as a friend. And it leaves knives to go find somebody who's more on her level. Yeah. Like knives needs to do growing up. And it's tragic to me when, when, uh, you know, people get into, uh, awkward relationships with people who are at a maturity re- level higher than them. And it's like, that's your form of growing up is like hitting the gas pedal and completely going past like your late teenage years and entering your twenties and you're just going to jettison forward. Like it's nice. I I like the idea that knives goes out and finds a nice boy. She finds a nice Catholic school boy and they hold hands in the snow. That's all I want for knives. Um, she also becomes a badass, which I like too. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) yeah, she, she grows, she does a lot of growing up in this movie. Um, Let's go through the X's, buddy. Through Let's. the X's. All right. So are you ready for Eric's crappy th- fan theory? Let's hear it. And if it's the, the return. seven deadly sins, I'd love to hear how you wrap that up. Well, it is. So oh. congratulations. I mean, anytime that you hear, anytime you have seven of something, you know, Christopher, or not Chris, David Fincher ruined it for us. Now we all have to just tie everything to the seven <laughs> What's deadly the box? sins. What's in the box? What's in the box? Um. But I feel like I got it. I feel like I got it. All right. Let's hear it. So, and it's basically based on how all of them are defeated um, for the most part. So, the first one is the shakiest. So, uh, what is his name? It's something Patel, I believe. I've got it here. League of Eagle. I, there is a Scott Scott Pilgrim wiki. So, I'm gonna, <laughs> if you want to learn more about Scott Pilgrim, it's on the on the wiki. Matthew Patel is the first guy. I believe he's Envy because Envy was the last one after I filled out all the other ones. So <laughs> that's my his process of elimination, he's Envy. <laughs> they do pick on how he looks. What? They What's pick that? on how he looks. Because of they his do pick they on how he looks. what is he, a pirate? Pirates are in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's some kind of neediness. I don't know. The Envy thing, like I said, it was basically process of elimination. But the second one uh, the 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 movie star himself, Chris Evans. Um, what was his name? Lucas Lee. Lucas Lee. He is pride because he gets defeated because basically Scott challenges him to, uh, that challenges him that he can't do the do the grind on the rail down the thing, and he's like, well, I gotta show that I can do it. So that's why I think he exhibits the pride, uh, the pride sin. Um, number three, he's gluttony, of course, because he's all his powers uh, are formed by what he eats. Yeah. Um, number four, 
that would be Roxy. She is a lust based basically just on the the back of the knees attack that Ramona gives her. <laughs> I mean, like the, if you just go basically on how all of these people end up uh, meeting their demise, she basically has a death gasm because he touched her on the back of the knee. So that's why I think that she's lust. Um, the the other two, the next two, the uh, Kata Yanagi twins, they... This is the are, one I want to hear the solution to. This is where yeah. I gave up. Oh, well, I think that they're Sloth and Wrath. I think they represent Sloth and Wrath for two reasons. Um, first of all, they have this epic monster battle, which is like... That's like Wrath of the Titans, man. Like, that is like big epic monster battle but at the same time they are the most passive fighters of anybody they just sit behind their little dj turntables and that's how they fight they don't have any physical contact during the fight while the other ones are fisticuffs and slam bang like these guys are just kind of laying back and fighting so they're using wrath through the giant monsters that they're using sloth because they don't actually engage in battle okay um and then the final one gideon he's greed because he's so greedy man First of all, not only is his little chip green, not only is Ramona's hair green when she's with him, but also he just can't give her up. Like he, it's never enough for him. Like he's got everything in the world. He's signing people to contracts. He's a businessman. He's moving. He's shaking. But he just can never get enough, and that's why I think Gideon represents greed. Not to mention his name is G Gideon. So, and that's through process of el- elimination. Matthew Patel is envy, mostly because you know he's like. Uh, he's jealous. He's a jealous guy. He's like the he was the first one, and now he's had to see Ramona be with all of the other exes. So his jealousy is is paramount throughout all of that. I like it. So that is my that's my interpretation of the seven deadly sins. I think it's close enough. <laughs> Did you were you trying to do that too? Did you have any differences? I was. I'm trying to think back to. I think sloth and wrath actually work out pretty good because. Not in the sense of how maybe the Katanagis responded, but or mm-hmm. acted, but because of how what Scott's responding to, I think that is mm-hmm. the more uh, the accurate system. Oh, because you're right. The band, like he's he was, bad. he was responding to his slothfulness in the sense that Ramona, Ramona had broken up with him, and so he was just angry and he just yep. wanted to get out. And and Stephen Stills is you know like uh you know he starts to kind of fall out, and Scott slaps him and is like let's do this. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the wrath kind of comes from maybe the wrath is the big gorilla dude, and the the sloth is the two dragons. I don't know, but yeah, totally. I mean, it's interesting too because like uh, Brie Larson's character is named Envy in this movie. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so you know, it 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 bleeds into that. But that was my crappy th- fan theory. Uh, so, what was your favorite battle of these of these the really six battles? I uh, of Scott Pilgrim. So. Choreography wise, I think the battle with Gideon is mm-hmm. the most fantastic. But yeah. I want I think from a directing standpoint, the battle the amp to amp battle is fantastic for two reasons. <laughs> One, yeah. I wish Rock Band played like this. I think Rock Band sits on its haunches as a video game mm-hmm. by just having you on a, a stage playing a, an instrument. Like why? Why stop there? It's a video <laughs> game. You should be playing. And this is my dream for a game called Rock Bard, where you play a bunch of bards. Right. And you're doing a bunch of magic as you play. Yeah. And you could do battles. Um, the other reason is a really subtle move by the director. We always reference every frame of painting. And I highly recommend mm-hmm. going watching the one about Akira Kurosawa because he talks about yep. the environment moving in the. Yep. 
the first thing that happens in this fight is they blow the roof off mm-hmm. and the snow starts coming in and suddenly this fight where we've seen the the you want to talk about diegetic music like this is the reverse yeah. this is music yeah. creating effect visual effects but on top of that in this battle the snow is moving back and forth being blown back and forth by their actions and it gives the entire the fight the rock it just livens up that what is a massive space with people down below and here's your two-thirds one-third of photography you know you've got the crowd for your bottom third and then this open space that would be dead with the would have no moving background it would just have the fight but they've managed to activate the entire space simply by blowing off the roof and letting the snow in and i just when i saw what he was doing i just fell in love with that scene it's so far been my favorite edgar wright scene we've watched wow down interesting i mean i love the i love the gorilla monster he's like my favorite he's i love i just love the way that he looks um in terms of fight choreography i know that there was a double in part of it but the but the fight at the at the movie set was also pretty good in terms of like i wrote it down i just said michael Sarah kicks a little bit of ass here yeah <laughs> like, he does a good he, job he does a fairly good job like i don't know if that's this edgar wright being able to inspire the pasty white guy to like swing his arms the right way because you know uh, uh simon Pegg also kicks a little bit of ass or a lot of ass really in hot fuzz um <clears throat> excuse me but uh but yeah i like that scene a lot i do that it's just so visual though and uh when when we're talking about the the scene at the at the battle of the bands amp to amp because um it, it's 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 really difficult in a movie like this where it's fighting 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 to break them up and make them different and i feel like Edgar Wright does a does as good a job as can possibly be done i think the only one that lulls a little bit is the fight with the vegan um but I do like that as part of that fight, everybody is there. Like Brie Larson's character uh, invites the entire band plus Ramona backstage to have a discussion. And so everybody's kind of like egging him on and, and commenting and all of that while the, the Jedi powers are coming up. So I thought that was really, really interesting. I feel like he does a good job, man. Like the first time I saw this movie, I was like, man, this is getting a little repetitive, like blah, blah, blah. This th- on this watch through, I was pretty jazzed the entire time, and I was really excited because it's so character driven. The way that he's able to paint these characters in such a short amount of time, like Chris Evans' character, you know, he gets painted with the newspapers. Uh, Brandon Roth's character, he gets painted. Uh, he's the vegan, and all of a sudden now he's a superpower guy. Like they do a pretty pretty great job uh, set with these set pieces, and also. I guess the last guy we should talk about here is uh, is is Gideon, man. Um, Jason Schwartzman as Gideon, like pretty damn good casting, and I love Jason Schwartzman just in general because I'm a big Wes Anderson fan. So he d- he did a great job. What did you think of Gideon? I thought Jason Schwartzman's portrayal was fantastic. He does a good job of, and I was listening to an interview where he's talking about this. And how, you know, the movie is through Scott's eyes. Yeah. In reality, maybe Gideon's a nice guy and a good record producer. <laughs> you know, he gives them a contract before the Battle yeah. of the Bands is over. Because yeah. he likes their sound. He's trying to be a nice guy. Right. Uh, and ultimately, you know, he's he's evil because of his control. His control over Ramona is 
<clears throat> artificial. But do you know this? I've said excuse me to Jason Schwartzman's face. Oh, really? Where? I was in a bookstore in New York, a really like offbeat artsy bookstore. And I was flipping through something and I turned around and he's like trying to reach past me to get to this book higher up on the shelf. And I was like, oh, excuse me. <laughs> and I just pretty much ran out of the store like, oh, my God, guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did he? How tall is he? He seems like a shorty. He's not to that me. tall. He was shorter than I am, I think. Small man. Well, that's short. But he's, you know, he just, <laughs> he managed to do the the range from being the nice producer to being the villain at the end yeah. to being downright evil in his final moments. Oh, yeah. When he anger. beats up Ramona, when he beats up Ramona, it's like, fuck this guy. Yeah. And yeah, totally. Um, yeah, he plays a good range, man. I feel like Jason Schwartzman makes a good, makes a good villain because he's so, he can... <sighs> You know, he's he's got his own thing for sure. He's the type of actor that in every movie that he's in, he's Jason Schwartzman. But he he's he can be like the sniveling, interesting. I mean, my favorite Wes Anderson movie is Rushmore. He carries that movie. That's his breakout role. Um, so he can be like kind of the know-it-all, smarty pants, uh, hipster dude. But he can he knows how to just turn that and turn those screws that really make you hate him, <laughs> which I think is great. I love your point though. I think that maybe he is just a nice guy. Maybe he's just like a nice guy, record producer, super successful dude. But and, because uh, he dated Ramona, he's evil to, and she's the yeah. one that he she he is the yeah. one that she is clearly still broken up one. over. Yeah. That, oh yeah. That is totally Scott's largest threat. <laughs> I, I i love this idea of just this scott pilgrim versus the, versus himself i love that's a great title scott pilgrim versus himself and it's just his descent into madness at, at the at the after after brie larson's character breaks up with him his descent into loneliness <laughs> so sad um anyways let's go on to edgar wright here because i want to talk about a few things he does direct directorially that i really appreciate so first of all such a stylized film but he really sets up this movie in the first two minutes to show you the style is going to be here, so get used to it. And he does that thing where he, he eases you into it. You're dipping your toe in first. You're not jumping in all at once, which I think is really good. So like in the first scene, we get the little title cards that have everybody's age and their name and then some funny stat about them. Um, and then that, that goes on throughout the movie, and then you realize everybody in the movie is 25 years older or younger. Um Right uh, at the beginning of the movie, they're talking about knives, and uh, one of the bandmates asks, when are we going to see her? And then Kim goes, I hope it's soon, and then it goes, ding dong, and then as it says ding dong, the ding dong words appear behind Scott. And then when they're doing the first kind of experience, the first band practice, as soon as they start playing the music, these animated lightning bolts start shooting out behind them, and that kind of shows you that like music is going to be a powerful and sometimes destructive force in this movie, but it has kind of a power of its own, which I really appreciate. So he eases you into the style right off the bat, and then it allows you to be on board as as it goes through, man. This movie is kinetic as hell. Super kinetic. Um and then also the the symbolism. Like uh if you if you pay close attention, there are X's throughout the first part of the film before we even learn about Ramona. And there are seven X's that kind of pop in. Like, there's an X on his jacket, which gets ripped off. Um, there's a X on the coffee cup that Ramona gives him. There's an X, big X on the Sex Bob-omb shirt. Um, 
So there's X's like throughout, and then there's also the numbers on everybody. Uh, all of the evil X's as as they go through the fights. And Scott wears a cool. shirt that says zero. Yeah, At so he's the zero. When he fights yeah. the the vegan, when he fights number three. Yeah. He wears a shirt that's zero, and he also drinks Coke Zero. Oh. He is the zero. Yeah. <laughs> I Which I thought that. was really cool, man. I love all the little symbolism that floats in through this thing. Uh <laughs> There's some great thing. I love what happened to the forums on this post because uh, they were a little sparse. Forums.ballmove.com, guys. And I understand that because I know this movie is not for everybody. But it just turned into like a quote off. So there was, he punched the highlights out of her hair. That was from Blanche. Vegan powers <laughs> from El Gato. And then uh, Gradle B says, it's milk and eggs, bitch. Which I thought. <laughs> I love the vegan powers. And I love the vegan, vegan police. Yeah. Chicken's not vegan? Um, yeah, just a lot of great stuff, man. This movie, I, I feel like it's a really good departure, and it made me really wish that Edgar Wright had directed Ant-Man. Makes me really wish that I was able to see Edgar Wright directing Ant-Man. Well, and it would be such um, a distinct like, third piece to this what we're kind of putting together with Edgar Wright, because we'll see mm-hmm. three that he has just from the ground up his creations. Yeah. Scott Pilgrim is so just lends itself to his style. The one thing that I wanted to note before we're done here is that how Edgar Wright cuts scenes together. It's yeah. he's very comic booky. The panelization oh, yeah. of his shots make the, the transition I think from comic book to film, Per, just fantastic i think they they line up and i wish i had read i wish i knew the comics so i could see what his shot for shots were i'd be really yeah, totally. curious to see where he lines up there and then ant-man would give us what is i think he wrote on that script as well and it comes through in the movie i think yeah but i would be curious to see what he does with that marvel style where would he would he be able to cut as much as he does you know, he does yeah and then well, to put together that material and that's uh that's kind of the word on the street as to why he didn't end up directing it i think that disney wanted something that was a little more conventional uh and edgar wright wanted to give him a fucking comic book movie like i i would venture to say that edgar wright is one of the best action directors in cinema right now in his own awesome way. And I feel like a comic book like Ant-Man that's inherently goofy, that stars Paul Rudd, has goofy powers like he rides ants for Christ's sake. It's, it's, <laughs> it's dumb. It's stupid. And it's comic booky. Like, it's not going to be The Dark Knight Returns. It's not going to be, you know, the raid in terms of action. But he's going to be able to bring his own action sensibilities to that that can make that super kinetic and super cool. And I love the way that he cuts, man. I love the way that he cuts. There's a scene in this movie when Scott first sees Ramona. After he's seen her in his dreams, he sees her at the library with knives. And then they, like, cut directly from that to uh, to him at band practice. because And what that, what does that illustrate? It illustrates that he basically has been a zombie ever since he saw her because he can't stop thinking about her. But they don't have to show that. They don't have to show him walking down the street, ignoring knives, and then picking and getting his base out of the case. They just do a, a cut from him in the same position with the same blank look on his face in the library 
to standing in front of a microphone and then his bandmate yelling in his ear and being like, dude, you played one note that entire song. Everything that we need to know is communicated throughout that entire single cut and it happens in five seconds. It's perfect. It's wonderful. That's what I really appreciate about Edgar Wright. Like, he doesn't waste a frame, man. That's the thing that I've noticed <laughs> through this rewatch. There's no way frames wasted. He's he's everything on the everything on the screen is as tight as it possibly can be, which I really really appreciate from him. And I would have really killed to see an ant hand a tiny ant phone from off screen to Paul Red. <laughs> ant phone, I love it. <laughs> yeah, man, and you know, exploring this thing. So we had, uh, we had, um. Shaun of the Dead, which basically explores kind of the man-child at 30. We have uh, Hot Fuzz, which kind of... It's kind of like the man-child grown-up. <laughs> I don't the know. man-child... Find- well, it, in that movie, Nick Frost is really the man-child. Mm-hmm, in his... Mm-hmm. In his... Almost to his 40s. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and then The World's End, which is coming up, is like the man-child at 45. Or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> whatever, however old they are later in, in that life. movie. Yeah, and this is the man child at twenty, and you know I feel like there's something that's okay about this movie in that regard because this is the time of your life when you fuck up and you make mistakes and you're practically homeless and you eat uh, <laughs> nothing but garlic bread, <laughs> nothing but garlic bread, you know, and you don't know how to interact with people, you don't know how to take somebody on a date. Like this is the awkward phase, like. This is a the same phase that's covered in in girls on HBO, but it's just covered in a much different way. But it there's something that's interesting. Like we have kind of the high school, you know, comedy. We have that down. The dorks in high school they go on an uh, epic adventure that's larger than themselves, and then they end up with the hot chick at the end. That's like the that's the trope of the high school movie. Um, but I like this phase a lot because this phase is all about awkwardness and weirdness. And trying to trying to go through this area of self-discovery when you're technically an adult, but you have no idea what's going on. I feel like there's something really interesting about this phase. And as we enter the world's end, I think that that phase manifests itself once again, except everybody's way older, which, which I'm excited to go on to. So uh, anything else on Scott Pilgrim, my friend? No, it's just – it's good. I'm, I'm loving <laughs> doing this podcast because – I love excuses to watch this this movie over. Yeah. So I will say I think our next director should be a little bit heavier. I feel like we've we've we're so genre so big on genre films right now. I think I'd, I'd be interested to pick a director who isn't doesn't rely on the genre as much as the directors that we've covered so far. That is probably so, a good idea. Yeah, because these are genre movies Let's in the get biggest heavy. regard. Let's get super heavy. Scott Pilgrim versus himself. All right, folks. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, please do. Forums.ballmove.com. Go on there. There will be a forum for uh, The World's End, uh, which is the movie we'll be covering next week, Edgar Wright's fourth film. You can also send us an email at directpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, folks, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.